Hello, and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and today is March 30th, 2022. Our podcast today is a recording of a webinar we held earlier, so earlier today entitled Policing the Narrative, Israel and Apartheid in the U.S. Debate. You'll hear references to texts and resources. We have a full list with links on our website please go to www.fmvp.org to find them. Thank you for listening. And now the webinar. So last month, as probably everybody who is listening or watching this knows, Amnesty International published a detailed and thorough report examining Israel's treatment of Palestinians and concluding that it meets the legal definition of the crime of apartheid. With that conclusion, Amnesty joined the ranks of international and Israeli NGOs, including Human Rights Watch, B'Tselem, and Yeshdin, as well as Palestinian and organizations and advocates like Al-Haq and Al-Mezan, who have likewise concluded that Israel's treatment of Palestinians amounts to the crime of apartheid. And just last week, the UN Special Rapporteur Michael Link articulated the same conclusion in an official report to the UN Security Council. Now, the Foundation, us, have held a whole lot of events already, exploring the meanings and the implications of the term apartheid for understanding the Israeli regime and its treatment of Palestinians. If you missed those events, I encourage you to check them out now and look to the chat box, you'll see links. Today, we're exploring something a little bit different, another aspect of the issue. And this is the dynamics and tactics, some new, some old, on display in the responses from defenders of the apartheid status quo in Israel-Palestine to the growing use and acceptance of the apartheid framing. And we have with us today three experts. Uh, they're here to talk about different things. I'm, we are honored and thrilled to have them with us. I'm going to introduce them in reverse alphabetical order for a change. Uh, first, we have Paul O'Brien. Paul is the executive director of Amnesty International USA based in Washington. Previously, Paul was at Oxfam America. And during the pandemic, Paul co-led Oxfam's worldwide influencing networks efforts to change government policies corporate practice and public opinion. Now, Paul is with us to talk about Amnesty's re recent report, the actual facts of the report, the context, all of that um, about apartheid. That's his role today. We also have with us Dr. Maha Nassar. Dr. Nassar is an associate professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona, go Wildcats, that's my alma mater, uh, where she specializes in the cultural and intellectual history of the modern Arab world. And she is the 2022 fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. We are very honored to have her. And by the way, we are still recovering from the Wildcats loss in Sweet 16. Um, and last, we have Peter Beiner. Peter teaches national reporting and opinion writing at the Newmark J School, Journalism School, and Political Science at CUNY Graduate Center. Peter is editor-at-large for Jewish Currents and a fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace and author of the Beiner Notebook newsletter on Substack. And I will add that all three of our speakers have extraordinarily impressive CVs. You should check those out on the webpage for this event. They've also written books and articles, and you can find the links to that in the chat box. Okay, we're gonna go right in. I wasted four minutes of our time with introductions. I apologize for that, let's start it. Maha, I'm gonna start with you. For a lot of people watching or listening, the debate around the use of the term apartheid, including efforts by defenders of Israel to reject the term, may seem kind of new, um, maybe dating back only to last year's report by Human Rights Watch or last month's report by Amnesty International. 
Now, as a scholar of cultural and intellectual history, can you start us off with some context with respect to apartheid awareness activism among Palestinian intellectuals and activists? And can you talk about how Palestinians see this moment when the Overton window, as people call it, is shifting due to non-Palestinian voices finally saying what Palestinians have been saying for years? Sure, thank you so much, Laura, for having me and thanks for that question. So yes, you're absolutely right. Palestinians have long been making the connection between Israel's treatment of Palestinians and the system of apartheid. Now, importantly, they've understood that the system of apartheid isn't an end in and of itself, but rather is a tool to advance Israeli settler colonialism. So one of the earliest scholars to make this link uh, was a Palestinian intellectual named Fayez Sayyid. And in 1965, he wrote on Zionism as colonialism and made the connection to uh, the apartheid regime in South Africa and others. Uh, I'll give just one brief quote. He wrote in 1965, quote, the Zionist settler state has learned all the lessons which the various discriminatory regimes of white settler states in Asia and Africa can teach it, unquote. So this uh, pointing out of Israel's racialized discrimination and its connection with other settler states is a connection that Sayyid was making back in 1965. In other, years, in other words, two years before the 67 war and the Israeli occupation. So it's, a, it's an argument that goes back even before the occupation itself and it points to a more foundational critique of Israel um, and its practices of apartheid and racialized discrimination. And this linking of Israel and Zionism as an ideological uh, movement that's based in racialized discrimination, we also see this playing out in the 70s as Palestinians continue to advance this argument in international bodies. So some people might remember the UN General Council Resolution in 1975, Resolution 3379, which determined that Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination. And so this racialized understanding of Zionism or an understanding that Zionism is a racial project continues throughout the 70s and then into the 80s, where we see Palestinians around the world, including here in the US, very much a part of the international boycott movement against apartheid South Africa. And I think it's because they recognize the close parallels of structural oppression that Palestinians and Black South Africans both faced. Now, there was a lull in some of this discourse in the 1990s as the peace process narrative dominated. But with the collapse of the peace process in 2000 and then the outbreak of the Second Intifada, we see a return and a reemergence of Palestinians more directly calling out Israel's system of apartheid. And I think it's crucial to note here that this reemergence was led by a younger generation of Palestinians and other Arabs often students, many of whom were born or raised in the, in the West, in the US and Europe. And so they were acutely aware of this policing of discourse that we're talking about today. And so they were very keen to bring their understanding of Israel as, as, as um, enacting structures of oppression to a Western audience that wasn't aware of it. And we see a lot of this beginning around 2005 when we see the first Israel Apartheid Week that was launched by students um, in the Arab Student Collective at the University of Toronto. And this was followed up a year later in 2006. Students at the Arab Cultural Society at Oxford University also launched an Israel Apartheid Week. 
Around that same time, we see students here in the US at Georgetown, UC Berkeley and elsewhere, also launching Israel Apartheid Week campaigns, all of which were aimed to draw attention to the idea that Israel is practicing forms of apartheid. Meanwhile, as you noted in your intro, Palestinian human rights groups have also been working with international human rights groups to examine Israel's policies and practices. practices. Um, there was a major report in 2009 that found Israel's laws and policies specifically in the occupied territories fit the international definition of apartheid. And again, importantly, that Israel was practicing the hallmarks of colonialism, which are also illegal under, under, under international law. And then finally, over the last decade, we've seen Palestinians turning to a combination of grassroots mobilization on the ground and social media campaigns, which have been quite potent. So many of us are familiar with the Sheikh Jarrah mobilizations. So that's a combination of local on the ground mobilization to raise awareness about the systematic attempts to dispossess Palestinians of their homes. But it was combined with social media campaigns, hashtag campaigns, and infographics linking that what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah to larger projects of Israeli settler colonialism and apartheid. And so to sum up, for over half a century now, Palestinian intellectuals, activists, and human rights groups have been calling attention to Israel's system of apartheid and its links to Israel's settler colonial project. So I would argue they're actually the ones who have been moving the Overton window, making it more palatable, making it more inescapable that the idea that Israel is practicing apartheid, uh, a system of apartheid. Um, and so it's gratifying to see other non-Palestinian voices affirming what Palestinians have said, um, affirming that this isn't a conflict between two equal sides, but rather a system of domination and resistance. So that's all gratifying, but I think there's still a ways to go and we'll continue talking about it, I think this hour. Thank you, that, that is great foundation for this conversation. Peter, another piece of the foundation, can you talk about the evolution of reactions to the term apartheid from defenders of Israel, including among Jewish progressives? It feels like in parallel to the increasing recognition that Israel is committing the crime of apartheid, Israel and its defenders are evolving and adapting the classic tactic of claiming anti-Semitism to repel ch challenges to Israeli policies and actions that embody apartheid. Can you talk about what's new in this dynamic, according to which, for instance, challenging Israel's right to commit the crime of apartheid is framed as ipso facto anti-Semitic, or that challenges, uh, or that it challenges Israel's right to exist as a quote unquote Jewish state, or denies the quote unquote Jewish right to self-determination? You're muted. Sorry about that. Um, I, I think um, part of what's so important in trying to make this conversation um, um, uh, help people to understand realities on the ground, especially in the Jewish community, is to unpack what some of these words mean. Because I think sometimes the way they are heard and experienced may not actually be reflective of, of the situation on the ground. So I, I actually wanna say a, a couple of things. First of all, when many Jews hear the words racial or racialized, their response is, well, we're not a race, right? Hitler thought we're a race, we're not a race. So one of the things that's important to understand is that when in, in the context of international definitions of apartheid, race can also mean what we might call ethno-religious group, right? Um, it's a much broader concept of race than we might sometimes have when we think about in the United States. 
Um, uh, the second is that uh, I think when many Jews hear the term settler colonialism, what they may hear is a denial of any Jewish historic connection to Israel-Palestine. Um, and that, But that's not, in fact, certainly the way I understand what it means to talk about settler colonialism. Right? I woke up this morning and I prayed and I prayed for a Jewish return to Jerusalem, as Jews have for, for, for thousands of years. Um, um, the, the, the settler, set, talking about settler colonialism doesn't deny that deep historic Jewish connection, but it is a way of talking about the processes of domination and expulsion that have actually taken place on the ground. Um, and I think similarly, when many people hear the term apartheid, they think, well, that was a South African word. It's an Afrikaner word. And in South Africa, Black South Africans didn't have the right to vote, but there are Palestinian citizens of Israel in the Knesset and even in this government. But so it's important to understand that apartheid has an international legal definition, which means racial domination by one group over another, legalized racial domination. Again, race meaning uh, 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 broadly encompassed enough to encompass things like ethnicity and religion in, in this case. And I think those things are often lost because frankly, I think a lot of the people who respond to this um, are not actually interested in actually understanding the realities on the ground and the international legal frameworks. What they're, do, what they're interested in doing is giving people a way of not having to engage with those very, very painful and difficult realities um, if you're someone who was raised in a context in which criticizing Israel was, was kind of, um, uh, was something that you were raised not to do. And, and so I think what you see in the response is, and I'm, I've been struck again and again by this response is how little of it is actually a genuine detailed rebuttal of the of the of the of the work in these reports. The work in the reports goes into, and Paul, I'm sure we'll go into, goes into great detail about things like Israeli land law, for instance, the Israeli the Israel Land Authority, why it is that Palestinians, although inside the Green Line, Palestinian citizens, right, although they're 20% of the population, live on two to three percent of the land. That's not a coincidence. It's because almost all the land is state land and it's controlled by a body that is basically functioning for the good of Israel's Jewish citizens, not even for its, Pal not for its Palestinian citizens, let alone the million of Palestinian non-citizens under Israeli control in the West Bank and Gaza. But I find that generally there's no response to that. What there is, is the claim that anti-Semitism is on the rise, which it may well be, um, and that attacking Israel in these harsh terms will fuel anti-Semitism. And so essentially it turns the entire conversation away from the substantive claims that are made and the lived reality of Palestinians on the ground to the question of Jewish fears about anti-Semitism. Those fears are, are genuine and extremely important, but surely they're, they're not effectively, they're not, the right way to deal with them is not to essentially say, because we have fears of anti-Semitism, therefore we're going to try to shut down a conversation about the bigotry that Palestinians face on a daily basis. There's something actually deeply perverse about that move, right? Because the whole point of, the reason anti-Semitism is wrong is, is because it's a form of bigotry. And so if you use then claims of anti-Semitism uh, and the language of anti-Semitism to try to shut down a conversation about the structural bigotry that another group of people are facing, it seems to me there's something fundamentally kind of morally perverse about that. So I think 
our goal must be to try to, or I see my goal as someone inside the Jewish community in particular, is trying to help people move towards a focus on the realities on the ground that these reports and that Palestinians for decades and decades have trying to be brought to attention. And I, I actually truly believe that, um, uh, that, that um, the best way to fight anti-Semitism is through a struggle against all forms of bigotry, which has to include anti-Palestinian bigotry. That these two, this work must work in, we must work in parallel against these two things. And that trying to fight anti-Semitism at the exclusion of, of, of facing the bigotry that Palestinians face, of course, is a denial of Palestinians' rights to not suffer legalized discrimination, but I actually think doesn't make us safer either. Thanks, Peter. And I, I think it's worth noting also in that reaction part, the, the idea that for me, the idea that for years, people have in the in the Jewish progressive community have cited, they've used the word apartheid to talk about a future threat on the horizon, but it seems to be sort of one of those horizons that is always receding, right? You're allowed to talk about apartheid in that hypothetical, but not as something that might, might actually be here. Um, Paul, I want to I want to turn to you and picking up on where Peter left off the actual report. Um, so that report runs more than 250 pages. People talk about it as if it's like you know two pages of just you know criticism. It is a deeply researched, um, massive tome which I recommend everyone read. Um, I want to quote it. So describing it, Amnesty says, Amnesty's, internet, Amnesty's new investigation shows that Israel imposes a system of oppression and domination against Palestinians across all areas under its control, Israel and the OPT, and against Palestinian refugees in order to benefit Jewish Israelis. All right, that's the, that's the short version. So can you address the purpose of the report? What was Amnesty hoping to achieve with this research and why put Israel front and center? And can you share for, for the clarity of our listeners here, the main findings and recommendations? And can you do all of that in five minutes? <laughs> oh, yes, well, Lara, thanks for having me on. Thanks for your leadership in this space and for convening this conversation. It's great to be on with Maha and Peter and to follow them. Um, and I think my comments will follow theirs, but from Amnesty's perspective. <clears throat> so, as an international human rights organization known to you all, our, we saw our role in this context as really building on the, the forms, much of the forms of analysis that Maha refers to. We by no means thought of ourselves as early entrants to this human rights conversation. Um, it's been going on in Palestinian communities for as long as Maha uh, raises. And, uh, Israeli human rights groups like Beth Salem um, and then Human Rights Watch last year. So we added our voice, but what was our voice and what was our purpose? As Amnesty, we know two things. We know international law, particularly as it pertains to human rights, and we know how to garner evidence on the ground by through a process of interviews, document reviews, um, and by a pretty forensic analysis of the realities as we understand them through our evidence gathering. So just to complement what you've heard, our take on this was that something profoundly important happened in 1965 from an international human rights perspective, which is that in the International Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which uh, entered into force, um, I think actually it was, it, it became a, a, an official document in 65, but entered into force in 69. Under Article 3, states' parties were bound to eliminate apartheid and apartheid as a word. 
So it then gained a franchise in international human rights law. The elements of apartheid were later defined in the apartheid convention and the Rome statute, the, essentially the statute that brought the International Criminal Court into being, laying out the elements of it. And, and this is important. In, in 1979, Israel ratified uh, ICERT. And in 1994, and this is important if you're the American section of the amnesty movement, in a rare moment of uh, international engagement with legal treaty bodies, the United States ratified ICERT. And you know, the United States hasn't is one of two countries that hasn't signed the, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. It hasn't signed the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. So it's really important that the US signed up and committed itself to a convention that uh, committed it to do what it could to eliminate apartheid. Um, the elements of the crime of apartheid, then we looked at, there are a variety of elements they've been touched on here. They include um, the fact that there must be racial discrimination between one citizen population and another. Uh, there must be inhumane acts. It must be done with the purpose of maintaining that system of discrimination and so on. Um, what we did in our 280 pages was to identify those elements and to see whether they applied in, in the context, not just of the occupied Palestinian territories, but in Israel proper. And we found that with respect to every element from a human rights legal perspective, they did. And so that's the report that we published. Um, for us, yes, the reaction since then, we have sought to explain that our finding of apartheid, which we also found uh, the government of Myanmar to be in violation of with respect to the Rohingya people in 2017 is an international legal standard, which we applied then and now we apply to Israel and will apply to other contexts as circumstances uh, arise and capacity on our side arises and where we think we can build on the efforts of other organizations to foster this understanding, which we were able to do in this context. Um, but it has been surprising to us, as you said, that instead of us having a conversation about uh, the legal elements of the standard, whether there is ongoing fragmentation of Palestinian communities across Gaza, the West Bank, in East Jerusalem and so on, whether there is systematic dispossession of land where you've seen what, if you look at, you know, in the West Bank, if uh, in 67, there was a 100% of the land controlled by Palestinians is now around 40% over that, that period, whether there is, um, divestment in basic social services for Palestinian communities that has been experienced not just in Gaza and the West Bank, but also in Israel proper. We haven't been having a conversation about those elements of the legal standard um, and the elements of apartheid. Instead, we've been having conversations about motives and, 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 and why we would do this in the first place. One of our core concerns here, which was well said by your other speakers, is ultimately as an international human rights organization, what we are concerned about is the full enjoyment of all human rights for all civilians in the jurisdiction in question. So yes, of course, we're going to be fundamentally concerned about any law um, that reserves certain political rights for only part of the population and not for the remainder of the population, which in our view was the case with the 2018 nation state law, which reserves the right of self-determination to only one part of the population in Israel. 
So that in short is uh, what our report sought to do, which was to document why this is not just in the views of other organizations, a, a reality of, of a political and historical and cultural dimension from our perspective as Amnesty International, it is grounded in international human rights law and it is proven by the evidence. Those were the two contributions we sought to make. Terrific, thank you, Paul. So that's a great starting point. That's the great foundation for the rest of our conversation. Peter, I want to come back to you in the second round. So back in 2020, you published a long form essay in the New York Times entitled, I No Longer Believe in a Jewish State. And in that essay, you argue that, quote, it's time to imagine a Jewish home that is not a Jewish state. So that essay obviously drew a lot of controversy and that was before the broader normalization of this apartheid framing. Looking at how the dynamics around defending the Israeli status quo are evolving, can you talk about what you meant with that essay and, and how your own thoughts are evolving in that matter? Sure, I, I supported um, um, a, a Jewish state alongside a Palestinian state my ad entire adult life um, um, based on a fundamental belief that um, as a Jew, I have um, a special obligation to think about the welfare of the Jewish people who are conceived of in Jewish tradition as a kind of an extended family, um, but also a fundamental moral universal obligation to all people, um, especially people um, that my own people, the Jewish people are, are dominating and oppressing. Um, and I thought that um, a partition which was the dominant discussion in the 1990s, as Maha said, uh, might be a way of addressing that. Um, uh, um, but the reality is that uh, through subsidizing settlement uh, growth on the ground, um, uh, Israel has made the possibility of a viable Palestinian state more and more and more remote. So that the two-state solution has really become really a, pl a placeholder that people can point to while they accept the status quo. And, and also beyond that, that the two-state solution, at least as kind of understood generally in kind of mainstream American political discourse doesn't deal with some of the fundamental realities that I think if one believes in justice and equality, one has to engage with. So for instance, the question is, why is it ethical that, um, that, a, that a Jew who, who's, who was not born in, Israel, in Israel-Palestine, whose parents were not born there, whose grandparents are not born there, can, can go there like myself and become citizen on day one, and yet a Palestinian who was born in Sfat or in Haifa or in Jaffa or their children or grandchildren cannot. But that seems to me fundamentally at a kind of a, just at, at, a, at a, very, a very baseline obvious level, a funda something fundamentally uh, uh, morally indefensible about that. And the notion that Palestinian citizens should be expected to be second-class citizens in a way that for instance, American Jews would never be comfortable being second-class citizens in the United States in a country that explicitly defined itself as having an obligation to Christian Americans that it did not have to us. So out of that, I would say, confusion I had about, about how to deal with these competing moral impulses. Again, my responsibilities to my people and, and my responsibilities to grapple with these moral truths that are becoming more and more obvious. Maybe they should have been obvious to me earlier. Um, um, I began to, to look at people who had been trying to think about what one equal state might, might mean. A lot of that writing, much of that writing is Palestinian writing. And, and I would say one of the things um, that was very important for me reading that, particularly Edward Said's writing, but other writing, was Palestinians who envisioned a one equal state as a place that would, that would also be a home for Jews, not only for Palestinians. And I also was very influenced by a strain of Zionism. Now, again, I understand that the word Zionism has very, very 
powerful uh, meanings, which is very different than other people. But there is also a tradition of non-state cultural Zionism, going back to Machar Ha'am, through people in like Martin Buber in the, in the group Brit Shalom, that, that saw the importance of a Jewish presence, a Jewish society, a Jewish home in Palestine, Israel, that was not, they separated that from the notion of a state that would privilege Jews over Palestinians. I do think it is extremely important for the Jewish people that we have a thriving Jewish society in Palestine, Israel, where people can speak Hebrew, they can do a certain kind of cultural production, but there is a tradition that makes a clear distinction between that and the notion of legal supremacy of Jews over Palestinians. And it was, I think, those two influences, the notion that there was a different notion of Jewish home, which was separate from Jewish statehood, in our tradition, Achad Ha'am knew a heck of a lot more about Judaism than Theodore Herzl ever did. And that there were Palestinians who had been for a long period of time laying out an inclusive vision of an equal state that said, you are welcome in this equal state. For me, that created a, a, an opening. Again, there's very little in my writing that is, is really, again, that's saying anything new, but I think by able, putting these things together, I was able to find my way to a different place. Um, and I think that um, it's a very, very, very difficult and painful process for, for a lot of people, but the more obvious it is that the two-state solution is no longer an option, the more I think people are gonna have to grapple whether they wanna admit it publicly or not, about whether they're willing to take that move or whether they're gonna be defenders of a status quo that um, is just by any reasonable stretch, not morally defensible. Thanks, Peter. Um, Paul, I, I wanna come back to you. And recently you spoke about the amnesty report at an event that was convened by the Women's National Democratic Club. And, and we'll put the link in the chat. I highly recommend people actually read the transcript or listen to the whole thing or watch it um, in full rather than, than just reading maybe sensationalized reports about what was or wasn't said. But some of your words were seized on by defenders of Israel to both attack you personally and to attack Amnesty and the report. I'm gonna read here the main quote that got, got you in trouble because I think it's, it's, it's worth re reading. Quote, my gut tells me that what Jewish people in this country want is to know that there is a sanctuary that is a safe and sustainable place that the Jewish people can call home. But I think they can be convinced over time that the key to sustainability is to adhere to what I see as core Jewish values, which are to be principled and fair and just in creating that space. I think most Jewish people in this country would like to see the both and the, see the both and of a safe Jewish space, right? So both safe and sustainable. A safe Jewish space and that state not to be built on a legal system of disenfranchising people in that country. I don't think that's a comfort zone for the Jewish community. Okay, so as I read it, and I'm sorry I stumbled on it, but people can read it for themselves. Fundamentally, what you are talking about is the tension that exists between international law on the one hand, that is the inalienable right of all people no matter where they live, and on the other hand, the inalienable rights. And on the other hand, the assertion by Israel that it has an unchallengeable right to maintain and undertake whatever policies or actions it sees fit in the service of the security of its Jewish citizens, the implementation of a Jewish right to self-determination or to preserve Israel's existence as a Jewish state. As opposed to, and here I will quote the interior minister, Ayelet Shaked, 
when she tweeted about a new, the, 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 the re-upping of an Israeli law that denies the right to family reunification for Palestinian citizens of Israel, she defiantly stated that this is a win for those who don't support a state of all its citizens. A state of all its citizens is her, her words. So can you talk about this tension, variations of which exist with respect to other governments around the world and their rejection when it suits them of international law? And can you talk about why Amnesty and other human rights defenders believe that for the sake of all parties, international law must prevail? Thanks, Lara. Well, it's particularly good to be on this call with all of you and to follow what Peter just said, because the first thing I need to say is I actually, I do regret uh, articulating in any way or claiming to represent what the Jews, the, the views of Jewish people. That um, was, uh, yeah, that was a moment I regret. Um, and as is very evident from this conversation, the views of the Jewish people are best represented by Jewish people themselves. Um, your question spoke, though, more broadly, what was the underlying what was the underlying human rights analysis that I was trying to bring to that to that question that that I received? Well, first, I mean, it, it's unfortunate that I have to clarify it, but I should that Amnesty, of course, it um, believes in the right of the Jewish people to self-determination. That's never been in doubt. Um, it also believes in the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination. And to the extent that we have anything to say about how um, future scenarios uh, should um, can best enable uh, everybody in the context to enjoy human rights. It is essentially, you have to start from that premise. You have to start from the premise that your goal is the full enjoyment of all human rights for everybody in the context. And if you ask me, you know, do I think that that's possible or sustainable? As a human rights activist, I'm always going to tell you that that's always going to be the most sustainable long-term outcome for, uh, for communities and societies to live in health. So that's essentially where we are. Thank you. Um, so Maha, back to you. The debate around Amnesty's report, it has shined a bright light. We're looking at this today on, 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 contra on a contradiction Palestinians have talked about for, for decades. And this is the contradiction between Israel defining itself as a Jewish state and implementing policies openly in line with that definition on both sides of the green line. That's not a matter of debate. That's a matter of pride for Ayelet Shekin and others, while at the same time demanding that it be recognized as a liberal democracy that governs by rule of law. Can you talk about how the shift that we are seeing at present in Palestinian activism, particularly from younger activists, away from a peace process conflict resolution framework to focus instead on demanding rights as defined under international law, how it reflects that very tension? Sure, thanks for that. So yes, you're absolutely right. I think particularly in the 1990s, we saw a lot of this discourse around peace framework conflict resolution. This was a time when we saw a lot of Israeli-Palestinian dialogue groups emerging on both sides of the Green Line. It was the heyday of Seeds of Peace, which brought Israeli, Palestinian, and Arab youth to the woods of Maine. The assumption behind all of these initiatives is that if you brought Palestinians and Israelis together, and they learned about each other's experiences and they discovered their shared love of Hamas, you could somehow end the conflict and have peace. 
Now the catch with that framework, and this is something that young Palestinians realized early on, is that this approach completely ignores the structures of power and domination inherent in any Israeli-Palestinian encounter. So it's great for a 15-year-old Israeli boy and a 15-year-old Palestinian boy to be bunkmates in Maine. They discover their love of skateboarding. They have family traumas. Okay. But then what happens three years later when that Israeli joins the military and then proceeds to arrest his former bunkmate on so-called security charges? What good did that summer in Maine do for either of them? And so that peace framework wasn't giving Palestinian youth or frankly Israeli youth the political or the analytical tools that they needed to even begin to tackle the structural violence that Palestinians faced on a daily basis under occupation, under Israeli domination inside the Green Line, the exclusion that they face as refugees, not to mention the, all of the entrenched systems of apartheid and colonialism. So the, the conflict resolution framework posits the idea or the assumption that there are two equal sides, they both need to get to know one another, compromise a bit more, and if they just push a little harder, we can have peace. So that doesn't work, which is why over the last 20 years or so, we've seen the shift among Palestinian youth activists, again, on both sides of the green line and around the world. And this younger generation has been much more focused on naming Israeli structures of oppression, even when it makes people feel uncomfortable, even when they face that knee-jerk reaction that both Peter and Paul have been talking about. I think it's also important to mention the harassments and attacks that Palestinian youth activists have been facing for the last decades from government authorities, from pro-Israel advocacy groups, from university administrations. And they've had to withstand those personal attacks often at great cost to themselves. So you mentioned this tension between Israel as a Jewish state and Israel as a professed liberal democracy. And defenders of Israel often point to Palestinian citizens of Israel specifically as evidence of Israel's supposed liberal democratic values, which is why I think it's especially telling that among the Palestinian youth activists that we've seen emerging, so many of them have been Palestinian youth activists based inside the Green Line. So 48 Palestinians, Palestinian citizens of Israel, including a large number of women, I wanna also have it be known, that have been at the forefront um, of the mobilizations of the last year and particularly of the Unity Intifada of last year. So part of what made last May's Unity Intifada so significant was that it marked the first time that you had grassroots Palestinian mobilization and coordination across the Green Line from the one day general strike to the other forms of mass mobilization. And it was those very Palestinians inside the Green Line, those who've been told their whole lives, you are part of a liberal democracy, you are not like those other Palestinians over there under occupation because you have rights here in this country. Those youth have, who've been living their lives have, have come to the realization, uh, no, we don't, we also suffer under Israeli settler colonial and apartheid rule, just in different manifestations of it. And the crackdown on protesters inside the Green Line, Palestinian citizens, the waves of arrests, the waves of beatings and other forms of torture and violations of human rights that they faced reinforced for many of them 
that they actually do live under an occupying army, that you can't separate out Israel's um, um, tactics that they use under with, with occupied Palestinians. You can't separate that out from the tactics they use for Palestinians inside the Green Line. Um, I think that first came into kind of realization in October of 2000, when Israel killed 13 unarmed Palestinian protesters inside the Green Line. And so these kinds of realizations have led to a much more systematic understanding and definition of Palestinians' struggle as being shared across the Green Line and as being shared in the face of Israeli apartheid and settler colonialism, even if the manifestations of those systems look a bit different depending on where Palestinians are living. Thank you, Maha. Um, so Paul, I, I want to come back to you. Um, so maybe shift something a little more positive, right? So th there's obviously a lot of chatter online, in Congress, in the media about criticism of the report and a criticism of amnesty, which doesn't surprise anyone probably who's watching or listening to this conversation. But can you tell us about some of the positive responses you've received in the US and around the world and the impact, the positive impact you see the report already having? Um, this seems like an, an important part of the story that maybe isn't isn't getting nearly the attention it should. Thanks, Dara. Well, I mean, honestly, to build off what you opened th this conversation with, we feel like we are just one more piece in a, in a puzzle that has been becoming more and more clear to more and more people over time. Thinking of everything that Maha talked about and the work of, of leaders on the ground. Um, in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. Obviously, it really matters that the United Nations Special Rapporteur last week came out with the same finding. Our sense is that this is a conversation in, in, from a human rights perspective whose time is long overdue. And uh, our hope is that by putting the 280 pages of evidence and legal analysis into the mix, we are going to see the corner turn from what is a fairly stale set of questions around why are we having this question, this, this conversation, to a conversation around, okay, so what are the elements of this international human rights crime which we should be talking about dismantling? Um, and, and, and our hope is that we can get from the more the generalized finding to issues of what we're seeing in terms of the dispossession of Palestinian homes, uh, the divestment in economic and social rights across the territories, the fact that it is, and this I think has been something of, we have been adding our voice to Salam and others, but I think it has sort of raised the level of conversation about how the reality of the system of apartheid, not just the crime of apartheid, is experienced by Palestinians, whether they live in East Jerusalem in Sheikh Jarrah, whether they live down in the Negev, or they're in the West Bank, or in Gaza, and how, they how the system of oppression and domination actually relates across these territories in ways that are experienced by Palestinians in an integrated way wherever they live in those geographies. Um, so yes, we are hopeful that this contribution uh, to what has been a building discussion is going to deepen the conversation about human rights law and the actual evidence, and then the very specific policies that both the government of Israel, which is duty bound under international human rights law, but also key influencers like the US government will take much more seriously 
as they seek to advance policy in the region. Thank you. And look, we're having events like this. So obviously the debate is already shifting. So that is, that is a, positive, a positive response in its own way. Um, Maha, I want to come back to you again. We're talking about you know, the report itself. There's been a lot of criticism of the Amnesty Report and the Human Rights Watch Report from, from forces that are defending Israel from criticism. Far less attention has been given to Palestinian criticism of the reports. Can you just briefly here explain the core objections that have been articulated by some Palestinian intellectuals and activists and, and why they really are important to hear and understand? Sure. So there are a couple of articles that I would draw a listener's attention to that I think articulate well some of the core Palestinian objectives, even as we welcome uh, the report itself as affirming a lot of what Palestinians have been saying for decades. So the first article is a critique laid out probably a week after the report came out by Dr. Lana Tatur. She's a Palestinian political scientist. Uh, she's currently based in Australia. And her research focuses on how Israel's policies towards Palestinian citizens of Israel particularly uh, also are tools of settler colonial domination. So we often assume that colonialism and political participation are elements of Israel's liberal democracy, she argues that they're actually ways of exerting domination and control over those uh, Palestinian citizens. So she wrote an article in Middle East Eye, and I'll quote uh, uh, just a brief passage from it. She wrote, quote, while the recent acknowledgement by the international human rights community of Israeli apartheid is important, the apartheid frame must include a settler colonial analysis and a recognition of Zionism as the racial ideology that drives settler colonialism and apartheid in Palestine, refusing to acknowledge the racial foundations of Zionism when discussing Israeli apartheid is like refusing to address white supremacy when discussing the Black Lives Matter movement, unquote. So, uh, so she's arguing and others have argued that apartheid is the symptom but if we're going to dismantle it, we need to understand the cause and we need to name that cause. And the cause in this case is settler colonialism and racial domination. She explains further in a podcast interview that she gave in Mondoise that ignoring settler colonialism also there by extension ignores decolonization. And so if we don't understand or recognize decolonization, again, we don't have the tools to dismantle either apartheid or colonialism, um, because extending equal rights to Palestinians within an Israeli state isn't going to really solve the problem if the fundamental underpinnings of Israel as a Jewish state are inherently unequal. So that's one critique laid out by Lana Fultur. The second, um, is, and I would encourage listeners to read it as well, is by Suhair Asad and Rania Muharab, uh, both Israel, uh, both Palestinian um, human rights experts. And they had an article published in the Institute for Palestine Studies called Dismantle What? Question mark. They argue, like uh, Lana Tatur, they argue, and I'll quote from them briefly, that the amnesty report, quote, fails to recognize apartheid as a tool of Zionist settler colonialism and fails to consider the role of Zionist ideology and institutions in establishing and maintaining the system, unquote. So again, an analysis of the symptoms, but not of the causes and the ideologies that underpin them. Um, Assad and Muharib were also critical of some of the public statements and tweets that Amnesty International put out uh, when the report came out, 
particularly its stance that amnesty takes no position against Israel's um, occupation. And so they argue that those public statements in fact undermine a lot of what's valuable in Amnesty International's report and particularly undermine some of the work that Palestinian researchers who are part of the team, um, some of what they did in terms of drafting and finding um, information and field and desk research, their efforts to reframe the discourse, right? So again, focusing on the symptoms rather than the cause. Um, and I recognize that that might not be the purview of Amnesty International, but I think that the policing of the discourse along the lines of what, we're, what we've been talking about limits our ability to see the limitations of the report and the ability to then move beyond it as well, or to use the report as a launching ground for a larger discussion. Thank you, Maha. I think that's so important and, and, and really helpful. And I, I, do, I also encourage people to take a look at, at both of those articles. They're, they're, really, they're really important. Um, I'm going to break the order of questioning. Peter, technically you're next, but I want to jump back to Paul because he's going to be leaving us soon. So I want to get one more question to him and then we'll continue on with you and Maha. Um, so Paul, if you'll allow me. The, the last question I want to ask you, and this will be the last round related for both of our other speakers, is, is about the situation now with Russia and Ukraine. So Russia's war on Ukraine has highlighted for a new generation um, you know, why international law and the post-World War II international legal order matters or should matter. Um, so what do you think, and I'm asking you to speculate as an international human rights expert, what do you think this crisis will mean in terms of pushing back against the delegitimization of both international legal frameworks and against human rights defenders whose work is grounded in those frameworks, including with respect to Israel and to holding Israel accountable to the same laws and standards mm -hmm. as other countries? Thanks, Lara. Yeah, and I'll try to be brief because I really want to hear what Peter has to say and be here for that. Um, first, I want to say, you know, as the American section of the amnesty movement, our main function is to, to hold the US government accountable for its human rights obligations. And so we are particularly sensitive to the integrity of US foreign policy as it applies human rights around the world. And we're quite aware that if it chooses to emphasize human rights or deny its human rights obligations in any context, that that is going to impact it elsewhere. Its ability to make the case in Ukraine as to what a principled human rights-based approach to that context is deeply influenced by what it says about human rights in every context. So when we go to the US government uh, and talk to them about Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories, we say, when you say, Secretary Blinken, the Palestinians and Israelis are entitled to equal measures of freedom, opportunity, security, and dignity, your words, we want you to realize that in US foreign policy and to deal with its implications in human rights terms. And yes, we believe that if you do that, you will send a positive signal that will be better heard when you talk about the rights of Ukrainians as, um, the, uh, as, as Ukraine faces, and this is an exceptional reality for Amnesty. Amnesty almost, because we are so careful to stay out of politics, we are very careful to name a conflict as uh, being the fault of one party so that we can continue to document human rights regardless of of where they're happening in a context. But in this rare context in Ukraine, we have documented and, and uh, identified it as a war of aggression by uh, Russia. 
and that the violations and the what may be war crimes on the ground, we're documenting in an ongoing way. And then we're asking the United States to do its part in, in finding um, Russia to be um, appropriately accountable. So all of that work is dependent on, uh, and our ability to influence the US is dependent on the integrity of, um, uh, of, of US foreign policy as it applies to different contexts. And of course, the world watches very carefully for hypocrisies or inconsistencies. The last thing I will say that your question speaks to is there isn't, we do feel for rules-based internationalism and the sort of foundations of human rights where so much is a threat right now because of what is going on. And so these, these next couple of years, how institutions show up to protect and defend and advance human rights is going to have a lasting impact. It, 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 it feels to us that the stakes are higher than ever. Thank you, thank you very much. All right, so Peter, we're gonna go back to you for the previous round and then we'll finish coming back to you and Maha on the Ukraine piece of it. But in the previous round, what I wanted to ask you um, goes back to another essay you wrote in 2020, uh, this time for Jewish Currents. And, and you wrote there in greater detail about your, your the evolution of your thinking with respect to Zionism and the two-state solution and all of that. So with, with that thinking in mind and the context of this debate around apartheid and what people are even allowed to say about Israel and apartheid and policing the narrative, can you talk about talk more about this evolution that we're seeing and the, and the political ideological corner, I would describe, into which uh, defenders of Israel have been pushed today, where in effect you see people saying it's anti-Semitic to not let Israel maintain policies that are apartheid policies. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it's coincidental um, that this effort <clears throat> to focus, to, to claim that, that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, that it's anti-Semitic to oppose the existence of a Jewish state as codified in things like the, one, so the examples of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, that it really starts gaining steam as it's becoming clearer and clearer that the two-state solution is no longer viable. Because I think what, defender, what, what the people behind that effort kind of understood is that as the two-state solution ceases to become a viable option, we can deb debate about when it was or ever was, but when it, when it becomes, as that becomes clearer, then the natural response for people who believe in human rights, who believe in the very basic notion that Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza and East Jerusalem should be the citizens of some country, right? People who, people deserve citizenship in, in the country in which they live. And so if it's no, not possible for them to be citizens of a Palestinian state, the obvious other answer is for them to be citizens in the one state that actually exists, this state of Israel, which, which has control over their lives in myriad, myriad ways. And I think what the move to say that one equal state is anti-Semitism does is that it tries to block that option which again creates this utterly perverse situation in which if one doesn't want to be labeled a bigot, who would want to be, um, then the only alternative one has is to support the one existing state that, the one state that exists today, a state that holds millions of Palestinians as essentially colonial subjects because they're under the control of the Israeli state, but they're not citizens of the Israeli state, right? And then other Palestinians as kind of citizens, but second-class citizens. So I, I think that's, it's been an attempt to, 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 to block what I think is a, would be a very natural reaction for people to start, uh, who had been supporters of the two-state solution, to start talking about equality in one state. And I think that that move will happen nonetheless. 
Um, but I think it's an effort to to and and I. But I think that what is ha what interestingly what will ha what is happening in in the attempt to forestall it is that pro-Israel organizations are essentially having to make common cause with a set of actors in the United States and around the world who genuinely do not believe in equal citizenship and liberal democracy anywhere. Um, um, because those are the only people who are not tempted by this move to say, well, if there's gonna be one state, surely it should be a state that provides equal citizenship. And that's why I think that APAC's decision very recently to endorse 37 members of Congress who tried to overturn Joe Biden's election is not coincidental at all. Because if you are looking for allies who will be steadfast in supporting one unequal state, one state that does not provide equal citizenship, that proudly does not provide equal citizenship in Palestine, Israel, your best allies are going to be people who don't support equal citizenship in the United States because they are essentially trying to ensure that any election in which a Democrat wins on the basis of getting black and Hispanic votes will be considered illegitimate, right? Um, in a sense to kind of try to make the United States a bit more like Israel-Palestine is today. And, and so I think that that polarization will, I think over time, and again, I just wanna say, um, when I see things happen like what happened to Paul, again, one can parse the particular words, uh, you know, but, but the basic reality is that when I see people from my own community um, again and again weaponizing the history of Jewish suffering and the history of Jewish trauma in order to try to prevent people who care about human rights for advocating for the rights of Palestinians. So Palestinians don't suffer their own, don't anymore suffer their own forms of trauma and their own forms of suffering. What I see it is as a desecration of the history of, of, of oppression of Jews. To take that tradition and then try to turn it into a weapon so that you can maintain oppression and brutal domination of another people is to me, to take a term from from Jewish tradition, Achilu Hashem. It's a, it's a kind of a desecration. And, and it makes me truly enraged. And it makes me enraged that we don't have the political support to stop that from happening. But I think one day, I hope we will. Thank you. That, that's kind of a mic drop comment, but I have another, I wanna finish this last round of Ukraine related questions for you and Maha. So Maha, coming coming back to you, and these will be the last two questions, so you jump in. And Paul, you have one minute left. If there's anything you wanna jump in and add before you have to leave us, you can feel free. I just wanna say thank you very much for your leadership in the space and for the reflections that you've all shared. And I was honored to be with you and I look forward to continuing the effort to achieve human rights for all. In thank the you. Ahead. Thank you so much, Paul. Okay, so Maha, coming back to you. So can you talk about what this moment, and with the, with what we were talking about before with Paul, the accrediting of international human rights groups of facts and the analysis and Palestinians have been articulating for decades. And on top of that, the UK, Ukraine crisis, which is focusing people on the dangers of what it might look like if we lived in a world without international law. What does that moment mean for Palestinians, both in terms of activism, concretely, and in terms of the political and intellectual directions um, that Palestinians go in the future? Sure. So I have to say, it's been a bit surreal to see so much enthusiastic support for Ukrainian popular resistance, 
calls for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Russia. The very things that Palestinians have been calling for, again, for decades and were demonized for, suddenly embraced and understood to be legitimate forms of, res of resistance against aggression, occupation, domination, and violation of international human rights law, international humanitarian law. So it's, I think I'm not the only Palestinian, I think, who sees this kind of, uh, it's a bit surreal. It also, I think, it highlights the hypocrisy and the double standards in the international community, particularly in the West, where some kinds of popular resistance is understood and, and lauded and endorsed, and other kinds are not. Having said that, I think also the current moment crystallizes in many ways ongoing Palestinian debates around the best way to advance the cause for liberation. So I think there's a general consensus by now with a few sort of scraggling leftovers, uh, but there's a general consensus that direct negotiations with Israel will lead nowhere. And that, frankly, international negotiations likely to lead nowhere as well. Two-state solution is essentially dead. And so only a shift in the balance of power will result in real change. So what does that mean? Well, there are those within the Palestinian community, both internationally and in Palestine, who emphasize the need to bring international pressure to bear on Israel. And so they see reports like Amnesty International's as really important in this regard by bringing the weight of an organization like Amnesty to the table to really solidify what Palestinians have been saying around international humanitarian law, human rights discourse, and so forth. And so the thinking is that this may help further bring the international community on board and put that necessary pressure on Israel um, to change its ways. But there are other Palestinians who say and who have said essentially, the international community has failed us. International human rights law has failed us. The human rights community has failed us. Israel only understands the language of force and therefore only armed resistance can liberate our land. Um, those voices have been growing recently and I think the headlines of the last week are an indication of that. And so what's interesting to me now is that we're seeing more and more a recognition on the one hand that occupation, domination, violation of rights inevitably leads to popular resistance and we're seeing that happening, unfolding in Ukraine. But on the other hand, Palestinians aren't accorded that recognition in their own, um, in their own context and in their own case. So I think a question that policymakers, um, international human rights activists and others are going to have to ask themselves is, if there are all these reports meticulously documenting Israel's system of apartheid, Israel's crimes of colonialism, settler colonialism, and racialized domination, we have all these reports out there, but we can't talk openly about them. There's a policing of discourse, let alone we can't do anything about it. What message are we sending to Palestinians in this moment? And I think, I think Paul is absolutely right that we're in a very momentous uh, point in time right now where I think the answer to that question, will the international community and will the United States specifically um, pressure Israel, force Israel to change its ways? I think the answer to that question is going to have profound consequences moving forward. Thanks, Maha. And, and listening to you, I, I actually wanted to pull up, there was a, a thread on Twitter, I think yesterday um, from uh, Benjamin Wittes, 
writing about the Ukraine and the debate around, you know, how you resolve this conflict. And he's he's outraged. And I just I actually just want to read a piece of it. Because for anyone who's worked on Israel-Palestine, it is impossible not to think of Israel-Palestine when you read this. And, and Mehdi Hassan actually tweeted it out with that comment and received enormous backlash for doing so. But, he, but Benjamin writes, quote, the, the UN Charter makes unlawful the acquisition of territory by the use of force. It makes lawful the defensive use of force to prevent this. It does not say that when country A invades country B, the world will decide how much of country B's territory country A gets to acquire through its use of force. And it does not say either that country B will, under threat of annihilation, be pressured to accept limitations on its sovereignty instead of pursuing its lawful right of self-defense to protect all of its territory. When you accept the rhetoric that the quote unquote side should quote unquote negotiate a quote unquote solution, what you're really saying is that the charter can go F itself when the threat of escalation scares you too much. That's fine if that's what you believe, but don't expect us to take your bromides about the quote unquote rules-based international order terribly seriously if that's where you fall when it counts. And he goes on. And obviously the responses to that are, well, Palestine was never a country. It doesn't have sovereignty. It's a different case, but it's a fascinating, such a clear statement of things that Palestinians have said for years and Palestinian rights defenders articulated so clearly here. Um, but, you know, will that mean people think about that for now, Israel-Palestine? I don't know. So, Peter, you're going to get the last word here. How do you see the apartheid debate continuing to evolve in the Jewish American community? And here I'm talking both in terms of organizations and leadership and the grassroots, and also as, as it affects Congress, which obviously has come out, you know, viciously against the amnesty report and, and, and strongly against Paul's comments. Uh, can, can the apartheid genie be put back in the bottle? Is that is that what they're trying to do and can it work? And do you think Ukraine is maybe a tipping point that could lead to some de-exceptionalization of Israel in the US debate? Um, if I could just say something on the question of violence, it just in response, because I think it's been in the news so much over the last recent days, the, these, these attacks. Uh, I, and I wanna just pick up on something that Maha said, because I think it's so important. Uh, you know, a, a friend of mine, um, very close friend of mine from college was killed in a, in a bus bombing um, uh, in, in, in the 1990s. Um, and it gives me just a, a tiny taste of what Israelis and, and Palestinians who have had close relationships with people who've been taken from, from violence might, might experience. And I, I think that when one, what, what I thought Maha said was so important, and it's, it's something I think that echoes the, the, something that Martin Luther King said again and again and again, for instance, during, during uh, the, uh, when cities were burning in the United States, um, which is that if you, if you don't want people to suffer from violence, and I profoundly do not want people to suffer from violence, I profoundly do not want Israeli Jews, who I see as part of my own people to suffer from violence, and I don't want Palestinians to suffer from violence, you have to deal with the structural forces of violence that people experience. This is not, you know, King said this, but it's a number, strikingly, a striking number of Israeli's own security officials have actually said this because they see things on the ground. And that means that if you want people to practice nonviolence, um, which, which certainly I think is the preferable form of moral, of, of, of resistance, you have to give them an opportunity to see that nonviolence resistance resistance will work. This was King's whole life's work was to try to show people who were he was competing against that know that my way can be successful. And so every time you block that, 
you shut that down um, by shutting down a conversation about international law and human rights and the amnesty report. What you are actually doing is, and again, this is not to justify people attacking civilians, not at all. It's about the way to make sure that people are safe and that we have, the way to make sure that people remain safe is to allow people to advocate nonviolently and therefore see and, get, and see that they are making progress towards freedom and equality. Um, and I think that that's so critical for us to take because I really fear, and I, I think Maha was, was alluding to it, that we may be entering a period. And Palestinians have been subject to violence continuously all the time, right? By the, the lack of rights is itself a form of violence, right? But we may be heading into a period where Israeli Jews, God forbid, also experience more violence. And I think it's crucial for us to be able to say that as people who care deeply about all human life, that the way to forestall that is for us to work as hard as possible to break down the barriers that are stopping people from creating nonviolent change towards freedom and equality. And um, I, uh, I, I think it's maybe we can use um, the conversation about Ukraine where, we, where so many people in the West instinctively understand why people have the right to, um, uh, uh, to not want to sacrifice any of their rights, right? And we, we see them as heroic for that. Right. Um, we don't see them as militants or extremists. Right. We see them as heroes. Right. We show them as, as patriots in the best sense that we could also see Palestinians that way. And we could therefore be part of a movement that would allow Palestinians to have equality and, 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 and freedom and not see either any any Palestinians or any Israeli Jews suffer. Thank you. That is, I think, a really powerful point to end on. And I, I very much agree with everything you just said. And, and look, I think, you know, all three of our speakers today, all three of you have um, contributed to this conversation in a very powerful way. And, and, and we are honored and grateful that you, you did that with us today on this webinar. So I want to, we're going to end it here. Thank you, Maha, Paul, and Peter. I said to someone that we were having Peter, Paul, and Maha, and they said it sounded like we were getting a 60s band together. So thank you, Mahapal and Peter, for talking to us today. And thanks to everyone who joined us or who's listening or listened to this event. We're glad to share this conversation with you. Please check back at the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, for a video and an audio recording of this uh, event and a list of the resources that were shared in the chat box relating to the conversation, as well as announcements of upcoming events, webinars, podcasts, and all of that. And with that, we will end. Thank you all for your time. And until the next time. Thank you.